As it leaves Afghanistan, the U.S. carries out a drone missile strike that wipes out a family of 10 people, all civilians, including several young children. We'll talk about Afghanistan and what comes next. We'll also discuss the devastation caused by Hurricane Ida and the urgent struggle to prevent 11 million evictions in the wake of the Supreme Court's ruling last week, striking down the federal moratorium. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's August 31st, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Walter Smolarik and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is out today, and she's also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, there's been so much news coming out of Afghanistan. Why don't we start with that story? Well, we need to. Today is the last day of what is described in the media as the United States' longest war. Of course, it's not really the longest war, as we said Last week, the war waged by the U.S. government and before it, the precursor colonial forces against the indigenous people in North America was by far a longer war. But in modern times, the war in Afghanistan is indeed the longest war. Joe Biden said several months ago the U.S. was going to pull all of its troops out of Afghanistan by September 11th. He intended to have that be a good day for him to come to the podium on the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks and say, we finally ended the war, mission accomplished. We killed bin Laden. Al-Qaeda no longer has safe haven in Afghanistan. We did it. Of course, all of those plans have gone up in smoke almost literally. We have the United States rushing forced out of Afghanistan as the capital city of Kabul fell. Surprisingly, we're going to talk about what happened. There's more details coming out about how it fell. Uh, The fact of the matter is that Anthony Blinken, who said, we don't expect anything dramatic or fast to happen, nothing, say, between a Friday and a Monday. And we talked about that in an earlier show. We now know, as some of the details are coming out, that Anthony Blinken was on his way to the Hamptons for a vacation on that Friday. And indeed, it wasn't even Monday. It was Sunday when the city of Kabul fell. And again, it fell without a fight. We're going to talk about that. I also want to talk about the fact that as it goes out of Afghanistan, or at least takes its troops out, it hasn't said that it will stop bombing Afghanistan. The United States also launched another drone attack in a residential neighborhood 
against what they said was a suicide bomber in a vehicle who was planning an imminent attack, another attack on the Kabul airport, and they destroyed an entire family. That family disputes that the U.S. drone hit any suicide bomber or apparent suicide bomber or any other vehicle. They say they were the target, and 10 of them died, 10, including several children. There was Zemarai. He was an interpreter. There was Nasir. He was an army officer. There was Zamir, the shopkeeper, Faisal, the student, Farzad, the student, Ayat, two years old, Samaya, two years old, Armin, four years old, Binyamin, three years old, all dead, all dead. Can you imagine? Can you imagine any country in the world, any other country in the world, saying and having its media cavalierly accepting the right to be able to drop bombs and missiles in civilian or in residential neighborhoods? But this is what the Afghanistan war has been like for the people of Afghanistan for 20 years. As we've said in the last two weeks, the media focused on the chaos and the drama at the airport. And of course, it was chaotic and it was dramatic and it was tragic. But what about the fact that the U.S. dropped 15,000 bombs on Afghanistan just in 2018 and 2019? It dropped 10,000 bombs and missiles on the country in 2009 and 10 during the so-called surge. 250,000 minimally Afghans have died. 71,000 of them are like this family of nine, civilians. Again, it's not only the fact that the U.S. carries out these drone strikes. There's a logic to this kind of criminal conduct. Joe Biden, like Donald Trump, like Barack Obama, like George W. Bush, knows full well that if they have a drone attack and it kills Afghan civilians, including all of these young, young children, there's not going to be blowback in American politics. But if a suicide bomber were able to succeed and get through uh, back to the gates at the airport and more U.S. service members were killed, that would be a big political problem for Joe Biden. He's already reeling from the fact that 13 service members Marines were killed two weeks ago. So the logic of the war crimes is quite evident. The deaths and suffering of Afghans don't really matter politically, but the death or suffering of Americans does matter. So better to shoot first and ask questions later. We don't know if they killed a suicide bomber. We don't know anything about it. That's just what they said. But the fact of the matter is the shoot first, ask questions later, or don't ask them at all, especially when you have such a tame and timid or the media is functioning as its echo chamber. The U.S. government officials and military officials, they know they pay no price politically by killing Afghans. And that's why so many Afghans died. So this criminal war technically is ending. The bloodshed is ending. We don't know what comes next. Will there be a political chaos? Will there be a civil war? We don't know. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in depth. There are two major domestic stories. One is that millions of families and tens of millions of individuals are about to face eviction because nine, well, it's actually six begowned lawyers who constitute the majority on the Supreme Court decided it was a breathtaking overreach by the CDC to declare that during a pandemic, landlords couldn't evict their tenants. We're going to talk about that. And there's a big fight back going on around the country. 
And we're also going to talk about Hurricane Ida crashing into Louisiana, what's described by officials in Louisiana as a storm as big as any in the last century. It didn't obviously do as much damage, kill as many people as Hurricane Katrina. But Nicole, it's a huge, huge hurricane, and it has a huge impact not only on the people in New Orleans, but in Louisiana, in Mississippi, in Florida. Anyway, I think you were able to talk to someone, and we're going to play an interview later, but you talked with someone who is in the area. Yeah, I spoke with Sarah Brummett yesterday. She's a Gulf Coast organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. She and her family are in Pensacola, Florida, and they've been hit by earlier storms and are still rebuilding their house. Pensacola is nearby. It's in this region. It's the westernmost border of the panhandle with Alabama, and it's very, very close to Mississippi and southeast Louisiana. I'm going to play, like you mentioned, Brian, just a short bit of the interview I did with her, and we'll play the rest later. Here's Sarah. For New Orleans is that, you know, the entire city is without power right now. A major transmission tower collapsed into the river. And so no one in the city can get power. It's unclear how many weeks that might take. And it also impacts the sewage pumps and the water pumps and potentially the levee system. It's not clear at this point, but these are things that are running on backup power now. And there's no clear information about how long the backup power can last. So, Nicole, we'll come back. We have more of that interview that we're going to play later with Sarah Brummett and also talk about the hurricane and and how the hurricane, obviously, the hurricanes are getting bigger and stronger, more devastating. That's a consequence of climate change, global warming. Again, everyone knows this to be the case, and yet there's a sort of ho-hum attitude about it. But there's also the immediate issues for working class and poor people. We want to delve into those issues because every so-called natural disaster has this very man-made component to the disaster, which flows from class society. We're going to talk more about that. But Walter, let's turn real quick to the eviction moratorium. The Supreme Court sounds like pure capitalism in its court ruling. Let's just introduce this topic and what's about to happen to millions of people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, truly one of the most horrifying Supreme Court decisions that I can remember reading for years and years and years. I mean, this is essentially the court, nine unelected millionaires who are appointed for life, pretty much explicitly deciding that the right of major landlords and banks to profit is more important than the lives and livelihoods of millions and millions of working class people. So the Supreme Court, using a process known as the shadow docket, which is this expedited process that allows them to not even hold like a proper trial about this issue. So using this expedited emergency process, they issued a ruling on Thursday night, so late at night, obviously hoping to sweep it under the rug, invalidating the federal eviction moratorium issued by the CDC. I want to read just a couple quotes, direct quotes from the majority opinion that was signed on to by six of the nine members of the Supreme Court. So here's one quote. Preventing landlords from evicting tenants who breach their leases intrudes on one of the most fundamental elements of property ownership, the right to exclude. And here's another one. It's hard to see what measures this interpretation would place outside the CDC's reach. Could the CDC, for example, mandate free grocery delivery to the homes of the sick or vulnerable? 
I mean, this is what they're afraid of. I mean, God forbid the government feed the sick or vulnerable. I mean, it sounds like that comes from a Bible verse and that the Supreme Court is arguing that this is like some horrible, slippery slope, a terrible fate that we can't allow to uh, to come to pass. And I think this is just so telling about the right to exclude, because that's really everything you need to know about private property, the right to exclude, right? The right of a tiny handful of ultra-rich individuals, ultra-wealthy and powerful corporations to hoard essentially everything in society, everything in society that people need to live a decent, dignified life, and to exclude all those who don't have the ability to pay what those owners want to charge for it. So this is the Supreme Court. I mean, it's a tool of the rich and powerful. They just launched this massive assault on 11 million working people. And of course, that means an attack on the entire working class. So this is shocking, but it is not going without resistance because the day after the Supreme Court issued this ruling, so this is less than 24 hours later since they issued the ruling so late at night, in such a cowardly fashion, people in over 20 cities came together to protest, to hold emergency actions, um, speaking out in major intersections, getting a lot of local media attention, meeting people, including many people who are facing eviction themselves and want to fight. These demonstrations took place within 20 hours, let's say, of the ruling taking place being announced. And I think that that points to what's going to happen over the coming weeks and months. I mean, this is a historic assault on the rights of working class people, and I think it could become a major front of struggle. Well, one thing you mentioned there, one thing you mentioned about the organizing tactics is to meet the people who are being evicted and then preventing their eviction. There are different ways that that can happen. One is that there's lots of money that's already been allocated for rental assistance that hasn't been dispersed. In the state of Maryland, close to where we are, only 20% of the rental monies that were supposedly offered to help tenants pay their landlords, only 20% has been allocated. That shows complete government failure, one more COVID failure. And it's not just the state of Maryland, it's all over the place. So one way people can avoid getting evicted is get them the money that exists either from the federal government or at state levels and keep them in their homes. Second way, you know, go to court and fight the landlord tooth and nail, try to have advocacy, bring in a big enough coalition of people to shame the landlords. And the third thing is to physically prevent people from being moved out. Now, you know, as socialists, we know that the role of the state, the state, whether it's a democratic state or a military dictatorship, whether it's a monarchy or whether it has two chambers of the, a legislature, whatever the different form of the state, the essence of the capitalist state is the armed bodies of mainly men that are the police and the military, and of course, with them as part of that process, the prisons with the prison guards. And then, of course, the courts with the judges. So you have the military, the police, the courts, the prisons. Now, the function of the capitalist state, regardless of its form, in a capitalist society is to protect the interests of capital. The interests of capital are the interests of the landlord. So when the landlord you know, wants to evict you because you haven't paid your rent or just because they want to charge a higher rent, 
and you don't pay the rent or you resist, they call the police and the police can come and arrest you and they forcibly move you out of your apartment or out of your home and they put your stuff on the sidewalk and there it is. The state has come in on the side of the landlords. The tenants can never call the police and say, you know what? My shitty landlord refuses to make repairs. He's jacking up prices. He's charging us unreasonable amounts for money. Go arrest him. Tenants can't have the police come and arrest the landlords because the capitalist state exists to protect capital, meaning the landlords, not the workers, not the tenants. So if the police are coming with a court order, the police, the courts, the prisons, the military coming to evict people from their homes, another way that people stay in their homes is when community people and labor and young people come together and form a physical blockade to prevent the cops, the sheriffs from evicting people. Now, in the 1930s, that's how the Communist Party became really a mass party was through the work of the unemployed councils blocking evictions because so many people were being evicted during the Great Depression. Again, a failure of capitalism, the boom-bust cycle, the depression. Uh, The workers didn't cause it. The capitalists and capitalism caused it. But when the sheriffs came to evict people, leftists came together and formed physical blockades. In the 1960s and 1970s, In the city of Boston, for instance, in the state of Massachusetts, where the tenants movement was very strong, it was routine where large numbers of left-wing and progressive activists and labor and community people joined together and stopped people from being evicted. In New York City, I lived in New York City at that time, we blocked evictions relatively routinely. That happened all the time. There were real struggles because the landlord would send goons and, of course, have the police as police there and there would be a lot of tension and struggle, but we were able to keep people in their homes. It was only later when the tenants movement in the United States and in New York and other places was crushed during the late 1970s and 1980s that all the power went to the landlords. But here we are, Walter, where this tactic might very, very well become an important part of the struggle. And that's why it's really important for the progressive movement to find these families who are facing eviction to develop relationships and to think through the different tactics, get the money that's there to build political support and three, if necessary, engage in physical defense of their homes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's an essential tactic that people need to revive and strengthen and study. It can be so powerful, one, because I think it has the ability, like you laid out, you know, historically to attract mass support. I mean, there's, you know, few things more fundamental, more necessary for life, any kind of decent life than having housing. And it's the added cruelty, too, of people being kicked out of their homes in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, when, you know, more than a thousand people a day now are dying from COVID-19 being kicked out into the streets in the middle of that. So, yeah, I think it absolutely has the potential to attract mass support. I mean, what an amazing political experience, too. I mean, a firsthand lesson in what solidarity really means to have neighbors come together, to have activists and family members come together to prevent an act of such abject cruelty from taking place. I mean, so, so powerful, important as an example of what's possible in the future. And, you know, I think it's especially important for people 
who are socialists, people who are radicals, people who want a whole new system to engage in this type of work. Because, you know, there's a lot of lies out there about people who are socialists or who are communists or who are revolutionaries. And I think this is something that really sticks with people. I mean, if the radicals are the people who helped your family stay in your home when the landlords and the sheriffs and the cops came to kick you out, I mean, that's going to stay with you for the rest of your life. So I think in terms of the long-term perspective of building the type of radical movement we need to totally transform society, this could be huge. But before we move on, you know, there's just one other clip that I want to share with people. You know, I mentioned the emergency demonstrations that took place last Friday against the Supreme Court's ruling against the eviction moratorium. One of them took place in Washington, D.C., right outside of the Supreme Court itself, organized by Cancel the Rents. That's an organization you can learn more about by going to canceltherents.org. This is Sean Blackman speaking at that rally. Sean is a housing rights organizer and also co-host of the radio show By Any Means Necessary. Let's listen. It's not because the resources aren't there. This country dumped trillions of dollars in the war in Afghanistan alone. And that's just one war, right? So the resources exist. There was a choice by this government, by the ruling class in this country, in the wealthy. There was a choice that they were perfectly fine to let all of us get sick and die. Yeah, I mean, I think that's such an important point. I mean, the idea that the money isn't there is so false on so many levels. One, because a lot of it has already been allocated by an act of Congress, but also because just look, like Sean's saying, just look at what they spend their money on. I mean, there's never any problem finding money to wage war. There's never any money finding problem to expand militarized terroristic policing. Let me just introduce one other way to look at that, too. So over the course of 2020, one of the worst years ever for working class people, where there is so much suffering and economic dislocation, the billionaires made about 1.8 trillion more dollars, right? The billionaires got 1.8 trillion dollars wealthier. So if the rule, if the government imposed a rule that for two weeks, For two weeks in 2020, the billionaires had to take a break from getting even richer than they already are. So not take any money away from them, just chill out for two weeks and not get any wealthier. Then that would have freed up enough money to wipe out all of the rent debt accumulated to landlords and banks. Two weeks. Walter, that is a breathtaking overreach of government power to suggest that the government stop people who are already billionaires from getting ever richer for a few weeks. But, you know, Nicole, you were at that Supreme Court demonstration and people who stopped by, people who were walking by, they were very, very sympathetic. And I'm quite sure that, you know, for most people, most working class people, poor people, people who consider themselves even middle class, when they hear the idea that, look, we're in the middle of a pandemic Trillionaire wealth increased by 30% in 2020. Those are the official numbers, by 30%. And at the same time, so many millions of families lost everything. I mean, they really lost everything. There was about 100,000 small businesses closed. And people might all say, oh, look at the job market, though. There's plenty of jobs if you want to work. Yeah, there are jobs that are either very dangerous 
They're jobs that are very low paying. For a lot of people, it's not enough. Even if you're working at those jobs, you can't pay the rents because the rents are too damn high. When you think about the socialist program, meaning people have a right to a home, your home should be your home. I mean, if we had a socialist United States tomorrow, one of the first things that would happen would be the banks would be nationalized and mortgages would be ended. So people who are, quote, owning their home, but really the banks own them and you pay the banks high interest for 30 years. No, it's now it's going to be your home. And if you're a renter, you're guaranteed that you're going to have either that place or a place that's decent and that's affordable. Even the people who right now are anti-communist or anti-socialist or confused about what it is, they would say, oh no, the idea that we could actually have a society where we were guaranteed that the place we live in is ours and that we don't have to constantly pay banks and landlords, that would make socialism very popular. But even now, our program, the program Keep These People in Their Homes, is very popular with the broader population. Yeah, Brian, I was down at the Supreme Court and a lot of people did walk by and take photos and ask questions. And, you know, when I would go and talk to people, it's not surprising to people that we were out there saying these things. My encounter with people and doing outreach and in talking with the people who came by, it's just this is a common sense demand. Stop the evictions, stop the foreclosures and cancel the rents. These are very common sense things like what you were just laying out. It's a very common sense idea that everybody needs a place to live. That's just a fact. Like that's not arguable. That's a fact. And the people who have, like Walter was mentioning, gotten $1.8 trillion more money in 2020, they don't need that. And that's also a fact. That's not arguable. That's just a fact. These are people who have far more than they need. And there are so many who don't have anywhere near enough. It's just a very, very common sense idea. The only problem is under the capitalist system, the goal isn't housing people. The goal isn't taking care of people. Like the opinion says, the goal is exclusion. Property ownership is the right to exclude. Now, I don't want to live in a society where that's the goal. I mean, the right to exclude sounds like a terrible thing and it is a terrible thing. I want to build a society where the right to include, where we all have the right to, you know, have these basic things. It's an inclusive place. That is absolutely you know, where I want to live and where I think a lot of people want to live based on the people I've talked to. Indeed, the right to exclude, this great right to exclude, and the idea of private property for a big part of the existence of capitalism in North America, human beings were private property. And they were even excluded from control over their own bodies. And they were excluded from control over their children. When in American slavery... When a child was born to an enslaved mother, that mother did not have control over the child. The child belonged to the slave owner. That's private property, the right to exclude everything. And what gives some part of society the right to exclude others? I mean, we have up in Minnesota right now with the line three struggle of indigenous people joined by thousands, tens of thousands of other people. This Canadian corporation, Enbridge, and the police are actually engaged in so-called pain compliance, which is just torture of activists who are trying to stop a private capitalist corporation from building another pipeline with dirty tar sands oil to run through the headwaters of the Mississippi, crosses rivers over and over again, goes right through the rice 
lakes that are the source of life for the people in that area and especially for indigenous communities. But the right to exclude is the right of private property. The land does not belong to us. The land apparently doesn't belong to the indigenous people who have lived there for tens of thousands of years. This land and the right to build the oil pipeline, creating just more and more global climate catastrophe, that land doesn't belong to the people. So the whole premise of socialism, the premise is that the right to exclude by a handful, by a clique of capitalists, by private property owners goes away and that the rights of the people become the rights, the fundamental rights, instead of the rights of capital, the rights of people. So the land becomes society's land and the right to homes, the right to an adequate either employment that allows you to feed your family or if you can't work, the right to basic provisions so that you have food, clothing, shelter. These are the essential elements of socialism. If people are trying to understand what is socialism, it means, you know, Frederick Engels wrote in the sort of draft of the Communist Manifesto in 1848, he said, the goal of communists is to abolish private property, which doesn't mean the pers- your personal property. It's not like socialism takes away your toothbrush and makes it everyone's toothbrush or your clothes, or if you have your house or something like that. But the private property, meaning the land and the basic sources of life in modern society, which are through industrial enterprises and other corporate entities or through the banks, that becomes public property. Anyway, we have it with climate change. We have it with indigenous rights. We have it presents itself in the struggle for homes and housing and against the evictions. Uh, This is what's on the agenda, taking away the right of the billionaires to exclude others from their right to live. And again, we cited the Supreme Court decision in 1934, where that Supreme Court, which is probably more or less like this Supreme Court, well, it couldn't be quite this bad, said that it, in times of emergency, the rights of people to survive supersedes the contract clause of the Constitution. And again, we've said in 1934, the Supreme Court ruled that way because masses of people were fighting. There was the Unemployment Council. There were two socialist parties, one communist party. They were growing, getting bigger, getting tens of thousands of new members. There were general strikes in Toledo, Ohio, and Minneapolis, Minnesota, and San Francisco. When the people fight, when they really fight, when they become effective, when the labor movement joins in, then the Supreme Court and these other you know, institutions of capitalist power say, oh, okay, wait, wait, actually, you do have some rights. Again, it was 1935, the next year, where the right to social security and the right to unemployment insurance came into existence. I mean, those were not rights. And beforehand, they were always considered communist until they were actually implemented. And then everybody said, oh, yeah, we like these. And whether you're a liberal or a conservative, a socialist or an anti-socialist, almost all working class people think the government should leave Social Security and Medicare and unemployment insurance alone, meaning you can't take them away because everybody considers them at this point to be a vital right. I want to go back. This is a far ranging discussion, which is fine. But I want to go back to Afghanistan, and I think that more and more details are coming out about what's been happening and what is likely to happen. 
There was an article on Saturday, August 28th, in the New York Times, and the article's headline, the title is, Evacuations from Kabul Wind Down as U.S. Prepares to Pull Last Troops. And then the subtitle, Hundreds of thousands of Afghans are still thought to be seeking to flee the country, but President Biden and other global leaders have acknowledged that many will not get out before the deadline. Okay, in the 28th paragraph, 28th paragraph of this article, 28th paragraph, here it is. Quote, for the first time, Pentagon officials publicly acknowledged the possibility that some people killed outside the airport on Thursday, that would be from the suicide bomber, might have been shot by American service members after the suicide bombing. Investigators are looking into whether the gunfire came from the Americans at the gate or from the Islamic State. And then the article, the next paragraph, says that U.S. government officials are investigating this allegation. I mean, the 28th paragraph, there are eyewitness accounts, including a BBC report, who said that after the bomb went off, panicked American and perhaps Turkish military personnel in a tower opened fire in the direction of the gate, and that many of the people killed at the gate were killed by gunfire. Again, we don't know if that's true, but I was shocked that it was in the 28th paragraph that the Pentagon, in a press release, contains a single line that said, quote, the incident is under investigation, close quote. CNN's only reference so far to shooting at the airport is this, quote, speaking Thursday to CNN's Anderson Cooper, journalist and author Matthew Aiken said he could hear, quote, shooting and sirens, close quote, from the airport less than an hour after the attack. BBC report on Saturday said, quote, according to one account, one attacker fired into a crowd of people, although reports also said that Taliban guards had fired into the air. Again, the Pentagon in their official press release said the incident is under investigation. Now, one of the reasons that I think this is important is it's not being discussed. Like, if true, that would be a pretty big story. Again, you can see how under the circumstances of a surprise terrorist attack, something like that could happen. Again, as we talked about earlier, sort of the logic of a criminal war is that American casualties matter and Afghan casualties don't matter. And, you know, almost 200 people, mostly Afghans, died, including 28 Taliban security who were present. So I think that all of these facts are important to uncover. The other reason one needs to be skeptical about media coverage and about the U.S. government presentation on Afghanistan is the fact that the U.S. has lied to the people of the United States and the people of the world over and over and over again about what happened and what the U.S. did in Afghanistan. And Walter, you know, as the U.S. occupation was, you know, winding down, we heard finally in the media report that the U.S. military, or maybe it was the CIA, destroyed, blew up, or burned down what's called the salt pit at Bagram Air Base. 
And the reason I'm mentioning that is that for a lot of people who are younger, perhaps they might not know what the salt pit is and what the US government did at Bagram Air Base. And again, it was concealed, it was covered up. You had an article in Liberation News about it. Just talk about what the salt pit was. Yeah, that's right, Brian. I mean, let me just read from an article published to Liberation News in July. Bagram has also gained the reputation of housing one of the most brutal prisons on the planet, housing 5,000 inmates. The CIA ran an infamous torture chamber at Bagram known as the Salt Pit. A 2014 report by the Senate Intelligence Committee revealed a long list of disgusting crimes against humanity, which took place at the CIA black site. Inmates were waterboarded, slammed against walls, subjected to humiliating sexual degradation, subjected to noise torture and sleep deprivation, forced to endure freezing temperatures and isolated cells without clothes, among many more acts of depravity. Survivors of this brutal regime of torture testified to life-changing physical and psychological trauma, but nobody has been prosecuted for these crimes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think of just the, the totality of what the U.S. has done in Afghanistan, done to the Afghan people, it's, it's absolutely horrifying. And in light of that, I mean, it's impossible to take seriously any of these proclamations from politicians or media pundits, you know, establishment media pundits, proclaiming that they're so concerned for the well-being of the Afghan people or the human rights of Afghans under a Taliban government. It's totally disingenuous, totally disingenuous, and just used as a, as a lever, as a vehicle to make the case to popularize the idea that the war should have been sustained forever. So yeah, absolutely disgusting hypocrisy by the perpetrators of some really, really horrific crimes against humanity in Afghanistan. They seem intent on continuing a drone war that could go on indeterminately, right? I mean, just like the US drone war against Somalia or Yemen or Pakistan, the US, you know, essentially reserves itself the right to bomb any country with these drones using these secret CIA drone programs to carry out assassinations against who they say are their enemies in other countries, but really, you know, in a vast majority of cases, just end up killing innocent people. So Afghanistan could become the site or could remain the site of that type of hostility, that type of aggression, even after the occupation has come to a formal end. People think of the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan as something benign, like we were there, one, to either capture bad guys like Osama bin Laden or Al-Qaeda, or two, we were there to help girls and women. Now, the Committee Study on the Central Intelligence Agency's Detention and Interrogation Program is a report compiled and released in 2014 by a bipartisan United States Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. And in that report, which is 6,700 pages long, it talks about how the CIA set up this massive torture program throughout Afghanistan, not benign. A lot of it happened at the salt pit in Bagram. A lot of it happened in secret detention facilities. Some of the people were kidnapped and taken to other countries. They were rendered to other countries for torture. Some were taken to Guantanamo. That's where we have a full sort of finally the people of the United States learn from the Senate Select Committee report, 6,700 pages long, which includes 38,000 footnotes 
and details the history of the CIA's detention and interrogation program. We learned there, and most Americans probably still don't know about it because the media didn't talk about it much. And by the way, when the Senate was working on that report, the CIA, the Senate has an oversight committee on intelligence. So the CIA is under the Senate, right? The CIA actually hacked into the Senate computers, the Senate Select Committee computers, to try to derail the report. That came out too. That became another sort of huge deal. But, you know, Dianne Feinstein, who was, you know, in charge of the committee, sort of made a deal with the CIA. So even though the CIA was hacking into Senate computers to try to stop this report, some of the information came out. And it's about what the CIA actually did. I'm going to read a little bit to the two of you and let the audience hear about a little bit more. You mentioned it a little bit in the article in Liberation, what the CIA was doing with what they euphemistically called in Afghanistan enhanced interrogation techniques or enhanced interrogation. Again, this was the CIA, the DIA. It was not only in Afghanistan, it was also in Guantanamo Bay. It was also in Abu Ghraib. That's in Iraq. It was authorized by the Bush administration. The methods included, when you were kidnapped and taken prisoner, the methods included beating, binding and contorted stress positions, hooding, subjection to deafening noise, sleep disruption, sleep deprivation to the point of hallucination, deprivation of food, drink, and medical care for wounds, as well as waterboarding, walling, sexual humiliation, subjection to extreme heat or extreme cold, and confinement in small coffin-like boxes. Some of these techniques fall under the category known as white torture. Several detainees talked about rectal rehydration, rectal fluid resuscitation, and rectal feeding. In addition to brutalizing detainees, there were threats to their families, such as threats to kill their children or torture them, and threats to sexually abuse or to cut the throats of the detainees' mothers. This is all in the Senate report. This is what the U.S. was doing in Afghanistan. The number of detainees subjected to these methods has never really come out, but it was in the many thousands. How many died? I asked Lawrence Wilkerson, who was an opponent of torture, but had been Colin Powell's chief of staff in the first four years of the George W. Bush administration. I said, how many people do you think the U.S died during the torture, and he thought it might be over a hundred. The CIA admits to waterboarding many people, three of whom were, you know, implicated in the September 11th attacks. Abu Zubaydah, who we've talked about before, who was captured in Pakistan in 2002, who was taken to the salt pit and then later to Guantanamo, I think still in Guantanamo. He was waterboarded, and this is nine months after he was cooperating with the FBI and talking, the CIA decided to waterboard him, which again, waterboarding is simulated drowning. They waterboarded him 83 times. And again, the Bush administration concealed this from the public. Finally, when it became known and when John Kiriakou, former 
CIA officer who was part of the capture of Abu Zubaydah in Pakistan in 2002 and who I co-hosted a radio show with loud and clear when he said in 2007 on ABC, no, the U.S. is torturing people. He said it on ABC in the Bush administration and then later the Obama administration went after him. So he went to prison for two and a half years, like Julian Assange in prison for exposing torture. But the torturers, no, they're not in prison. But this is what the U.S. has actually done in Afghanistan, what it did in Iraq, what it's done in Yemen, what it does in Somalia. And if people keep thinking about, oh, we're so worried about what's going to come next in Afghanistan because the benign occupation of the United States is ending, you just have to look at these facts to recognize this wasn't benign. Anyway, we have to be really aware of the crimes of imperialism and recognize that the U.S. media, which functions as an echo chamber for the establishment, will never expose these crimes. But the people who are the victims of the crimes really feel them. And, you know, Nicole, let's go back to how capitalism, which is imperialism, which is inflicting so much misery overseas, it's also a system that imposes a lot of misery right here. And of course, we just have to send our solidarity to the people in New Orleans, the people in Louisiana, in Mississippi, in Alabama, in the panhandle of Florida. Again, you have been following the story. The devastation there is huge and, again, completely predictable, but the government's response so weak. Yeah, you put it exactly right. You know, as of Sunday night, most of New Orleans was without power and an estimated 850,000 people don't have power just in New Orleans. The company expects 10% of them, which is almost 100,000 people, to have no power for up to three weeks. And that's just what they're saying right now. So this is definitely you know, not adequate, not useful, and absolutely not what people need right now. The levee system in New Orleans that is new since Katrina has held up so far, but any of the regions that were outside of the New Orleans levee system did not hold up. And several hundred Southern Louisiana residents were on top of their houses to save themselves from high and rising water. For example, there was a 10 foot high surge that topped a levee in Plaquemines Parish, which is just Southeast of the city of New Orleans. There's not enough of anything in these places. The government isn't providing enough of anything. There's not enough water. There's not enough electricity. Levees in some of these places aren't working. We heard already earlier in this show from Sarah Brummett, who let us know, too, that because of some of the power outages, the levees might stop working at some point. So, you know, it's total devastation yet again. And there are a lot of people coming to the defense of the New Orleans government, of the New Orleans mayor, saying, well, they didn't have very much notice. They didn't have very much notice because Ida got stronger very quickly. And that is a direct result of climate change. The water in the Gulf has been warmer and warmer and warmer and you know steadily more warmer. And hurricanes can gain strength very, very quickly from warm water. They churn up water from below. And if the water is still warm below, they can gain strength very, very quickly, which is exactly what happened with Ida. You know, Just late last week, it was a Category 2. That by the time it hit over the weekend, it was almost a Category 5, just under Category 5 status, which is the most intense category that there is for hurricanes. So, you know, people are saying, well, they couldn't have known in New Orleans. But the thing is that you can know because it's a coastal city that is battered by hurricane after hurricane after hurricane. 
Absolutely, you can know. You might not have the week of notice that you want, but that's the new reality in climate change since the leaders of this country haven't actually dealt with that. That's the new reality. And that's what the government is going to have to deal with and what they're deeply not dealing with. As of 8.30 in the morning on Saturday, there were four New Orleans area jails that were not planning on evacuating. The New Orleans jail itself did evacuate as of 10 a.m. Saturday, this past Saturday. Those people were evacuated to Angola, the massive prison and former, well, in some ways, current plantation system in Louisiana. That's a massive prison. So I'm sure the conditions won't be good there, but they are out of harm's way for the moment. But St. Charles Parish, Jefferson Parish, St. John Parish, Lafouche Parish, it was about 2,000 people who were held who were not evacuated. And I'm hoping, just absolutely hoping that everyone is okay. But it just shows you, you know, the, the way the government is not responding adequately. I want to play two more clips with my interview with Sarah. So I, I talked to her again. She's in Pensacola, which is on the Gulf Coast. It's the panhandle of Florida. It's very, very close to southeastern Louisiana. So here is another part of my interview with Sarah Brummett, a Gulf Coast organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Sarah, what has the government response been? And is this affecting working class people differently than wealthy people in terms of being able to evacuate, having home insurance, or even health care? I think it's important to kind of lay out the like lack of preparation from our local and state governments. For example, in New Orleans, when they issued the evacuation orders, they were like very overt about the fact that they would issue a mandatory evacuation order for the whole city, but that they just didn't have time, which tells me that the infrastructure to evacuate people is very poor and that they don't really prioritize the people who can't evacuate themselves. So with a voluntary evacuation order, you're really just looking at people whose vehicles can make the long drive, who can afford to rent a hotel room out of the area, who can afford the gas. And that's not most people, especially not in the Gulf Coast region, which is like a very poor and very oppressed region for a lot of the population here. And the insurance, you know, a lot of people who have lived in their communities for a long time, they own their homes outright. It may have been in their family for generations. And because of that, they're not required legally to maintain insurance on it. And because they usually can't afford to, because these are you know very high-risk environments and the insurance companies charge so much money, they are often uninsured. So when the storm comes, it's up to FEMA to issue any kind of assistance. And in many cases, FEMA does not. I mean, personally, I was hit by a hurricane last year. I do have insurance on my home, but it doesn't cover the scale of the damage. And my FEMA check was like $100. It's really paltry. It's really laughable. So these people are then left with nowhere to go. And some of them are permanently relocated. I'm sure you may remember after Katrina, New Orleans was completely changed. Huge numbers of people were completely forced out of the region because of the damage to their homes. And that definitely changed the landscape of the city and was a major kind of basis for the gentrification of New Orleans. You also did bring up the healthcare issue. You know, we are still in a global pandemic. Louisiana is one of the worst hit states. Florida is another one of the worst hit states. And many of the people who are hit hardest are the poor people, the people who don't have the health insurance. And then the hospitals, you know, are overrun with COVID patients and there was nothing in place to evacuate the hospitals. You may have seen the video of one of the hospitals roofs blowing off during the hurricane yesterday. So it's really a horrific situation for working class people right now. So that was Sarah. And, you know, she really addresses a lot of the compounding factors of this capitalist society, where if you don't have insurance and you don't have health care and 
you're sitting in New Orleans where, you know, that's where your family's been from. That's where your family's been for a long time. What do you do? You don't have a car to leave. What do you do? You stay. That's what you do. That's all you can do. Nicole, did you see the stories about some of the people who need an ICU bed because of COVID are actually in underground parking garages associated with some of the hospitals, but then some of the patients in the ICU because they lost power, people are on ventilators, people are getting oxygen, and suddenly they lost everything. So doctors and nurses, at least in this one hospital, were having to physically carry patients from the ICU beds where they had lost power, again, predictable in a hurricane given the circumstances, and having to move them to another floor where they thought they could have some power from a power generator that would allow them to resume these life-saving practices. Again, this is happening to working class people. This is happening to poor people. This is not happening to the upper classes. This shows that in a climate catastrophe or any so-called natural disaster, all of the elements of class society show themselves with a vengeance. Those billionaires that Walter mentioned that got $1.8 trillion more dollars in 2020, I mean, think of what a fraction of that could do for the infrastructure of New Orleans, even for just generators for the hospitals at a basic level. I'm going to play another and the last clip of my interview with Sarah Brummett. She's been in the Gulf Coast all her life and has gone through a lot of these hurricanes. So she reflected on her experiences and the experiences of her neighbors around her. I've lived here my whole life and I've been an organizer for several years. And so I've experienced firsthand organizing relief for hurricanes. Michael, which hit the Panama City area, Hurricane Lara, which hit Lake Charles area, and then Hurricane Sally, which hit my area pretty directly. I'm in Pensacola, Florida. Um, And the thing that really sticks out to me as a person who's trying to help organize immediate relief for people who are hardest hit is that we are on the ground days and days in advance of anything that the Red Cross or FEMA brings to the table. They're very slow to respond. I've noticed that their response is very inadequate. Many people who really do need help don't really get approved for it or aren't able to access it for a number of reasons. And furthermore, we also see a trend now with the National Guard being sent in and then coming in and protecting the empty storefronts. A lot of times there'll be damaged storefronts and the National Guard will be stationed in front while there are people you know, trying to find basic survival you know, trying to get water, trying to get food. And so they're really just trying to make sure that those people don't, you know, become so-called looters rather than meeting the needs of those people. And so it's really stark when you see the scale of the damage and also that these major storms are increasing. That's another pattern. You know, you mentioned climate change earlier. The Gulf has been getting warmer and warmer, and these storms are getting stronger, more frequent, and more unpredictable in my experience. So people are just not able to respond in real time to protect themselves. They don't have the resources and then they're left without adequate assistance afterwards. Yeah. I mean, just picking up on that point that Sarah made about climate change. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the biggest ironies of this is that the industry that's perhaps most responsible for climate change, the oil and gas industry is so politically powerful in Louisiana. I mean, it's one of the biggest industries in the state 
an immense amount of wealth is generated and owned by the oil and natural gas capitalists in Louisiana. And of course, they turn all of that money into political influence and political power to you know, promote these far-right politicians who deny the very existence of climate change. I mean, it's just further evidence that you know these corporations, even in the communities that they are closest to, where they are physically located, they have absolutely no regard for people's well-being. And one other point I thought Sarah made that was so important, when the paper or when the news tells you there's been a huge hurricane and, you know, the National Guards of 22 states are headed down to help out. You know, I think most people think like they're going to go pass out water, not like prevent people from getting water, which is what, you know, she's saying she's seeing quite a bit. It's just a really, really disgusting, really disgusting thing that's happening. The premise of this is it's directed against the working class. It's also profoundly racist. I mean, we all remember, hopefully, that after Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans in 2005, New Orleans cops circulated orders authorizing police to, quote, shoot looters and, quote, take back the city. It was unclear who issued them, but that's what happened in white vigilantes forum. They shot black people. If black people who were unable to get home, who were flooded out, were in the vicinity of stores where there might be food, people were shot. 11 people were shot dead during that time. 1,800 people died. And, you know, we have those famous photos of people who were carried signs that said, No Iraqi left me on the roof to die because. That's also what happened to the black community in New Orleans. And again, as Sarah mentioned in that earlier clip, when she's talking about the profound change in New Orleans, it's the gentrification, the driving out of black residents from New Orleans and the grabbing of their homes and their property as part of that gentrification effort. And we see that too all over the time, that capitalism also thrives on disaster. It thrives on crises. Because, of course, at a moment of crisis when society is disrupted, the capitalist can see an opportunity to make even more money, like the fact that people are being evicted, Walter. Blackstone and the other big realty companies, they're like salivating. They know they can buy those homes for people who are landlords who have you know gone broke because their tenants couldn't pay the rent if they were small landlords or if they were homeowners. There's 2 million families, more than 2 million who are facing foreclosure. It's going to be good and big business for them. So we have to also remember as organizers, as you know, we're doing a radio show, but we're also organizers that each of these natural disasters or economic disasters, it reflects class society and it will also be taken advantage of by class forces. But Walter, the most important thing right now, going back, and I want to wrap the show up, but before I do, we have to, because we're, we are organizers, we have to talk about what people can do and should be doing right now in the coming weeks to stop this wave of evictions, which may be the greatest eviction wave in U.S. history. Let's just talk about that real quick with Cancel the Rents, and then we'll hear about the main stories, the biggest stories in the Liberation News newsletter. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think that the organization Cancel the Rents has been one of the most consistent fighters against evictions since this pandemic began. I want to encourage everybody to go 
to cancelthereents.org and you can sign up to receive updates from them. I know that organizers all across the country are meeting, are planning, are forming coalitions, building relationships to launch an intensive campaign to fight back. If you get updates from Cancel the Rents, again, cancelthereents.org, you'll be able to find all the information there. You can also follow Cancel the Rents on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I think that everybody who's listening to this should begin to talk to their neighbors, talk to their coworkers, see who might be behind on their rent, see who might be worried about eviction, or maybe they have a loved one or a friend who's facing eviction. And let's begin to organize together. Let's meet and see how we could potentially solve these problems, place pressure on the people who are able to solve these problems, and build solidarity in the face of this massive crisis. I mean, the worst thing that could happen is if everybody thinks, okay, we're all It's everybody for themselves, right? I mean, and it's easy to get that sense when you live in a capitalist society where that's kind of the mantra. But if we organize and fight back, we can face this crisis as a united working class where nobody loses their homes because we refuse to let that happen. So yeah, I mean, look into groups that are already organizing in your local areas, look into what Cancel the Rents is doing in your local area, and be on alert for what I think will be a multi-month process, a struggle that's going to be taking place in the coming weeks, days, months, that will have a real possibility. I think if enough of us get together, and there's a good shot at that happening, a real possibility at forcing Congress to act, to legislate an indefinite nationwide moratorium on evictions, and to cancel the rents, to wipe out all of the debt accumulated by renters and mortgage holders to landlords and banks. And I think, importantly, we can also place pressure on local officials to speed up the disbursement of the already allocated renter relief funds that's being given out at a remarkably slow place, an outrageously slow pace because of all this red tape and documentation and bureaucracy and hoops that people are being forced to jump through. All right, let's hear the big stories from Liberation News. Yeah, so, you know, speaking of things to sign up for, also sign up for the Liberation News newsletter. You'll get all the analysis from international, local, and national issues that we update the site with every single day. One article that I want to recommend is titled, Workers Refuse to Shoulder the Burden for the Boss's Climate Crisis. This involves interviews, accounts of different workers' struggles that have been taking place recently across the country in response to the consequences of the climate crisis that the planet is undergoing. You know, that ranges from Burger King workers who are walking out over a lack of air conditioning amid extreme heat unsafe air conditions because of fire season, unsafe air conditioning in schools in California because of the fire season, prison labor being used to fight those fires, farm workers who are exposed to absolutely deadly conditions. Check out that article, Workers Refuse to Shoulder the Burden for the Boss's Climate Crisis. And you can also read a roundup of reports from all of those demonstrations that I mentioned took place last Saturday. Uh, It's titled, Congress Must Act, Supreme Court Evictions Ruling Sparks Protests Nationwide. In every part of the country, in big cities and small towns, people took to the streets in these demonstrations that were called for by Cancel the Rents. Finally, you know, today is the last day of Black August. There's a report in Liberation News about an event that took place to commemorate the anniversary of the assassination of George Jackson. This was held outside San Quentin Prison. George Jackson was assassinated inside 
inside of that prison by prison guards. The title of this article is Black August Commemorated at San Quentin Prison. All right. Thank you, Walter. I want to say before we leave that our friend Ed Asner, famed actor and film and TV, has died. Ed Asner was a true progressive force. He frequently spoke at Answer Coalition demonstrations. We had mass demonstrations that were constantly happening before, during, and after the invasion of Iraq. Ed Asner stood for the people of El Salvador. He stood with the people of Cuba. He demanded the end of the blockade. A remarkable figure. We, of course, send our condolences to his family and to his friends for all of those in the anti-war movement, especially those in California. He was an important organizer, not simply a celebrity, but an important organizer. Final message, Nicole, we'll be back, of course, tomorrow with Richard Wolf. On Thursday, we have The Real Story. We just finished last week our monthly seminar for patrons. And again, Nicole, we like those discussions because we get to talk to the people who are subscribing to the show. It's direct. We're having real communication with people about what they're thinking about, their reactions to the show, their reactions to politics. And we need other people to become subscribers. We can only bring you this kind of programming if you help, if you do your part, if you subscribe, even if it's a small amount of money each month, it really, really makes a difference. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to the socialist program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.